ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We're going to start with a newspaper headline dated 29th of April 1931. On the front page of Sydney's Daily Mirror ran the bold headline, Lassiter is dead. Starvation ends his search for fabled gold reef. Body in shallow grave. Harold Lassiter's death was a hideous end to an expedition into the most remote part of central Australia. They had set out in search of something Harold Lassiter had said he'd stumbled on more than 30 years earlier. A reef of gold. 15 kilometres long, stretching across the desert. Harold Lassiter had apparently held on to the secret of this startling discovery for decades, until the outbreak of the Great Depression. That's when he proposed to form an expedition, to go back to central Australia and find the gold reef. Lassiter was a well-spoken man, and his story excited enormous national interest and raised hopes in the government that the gold might lift Australia out of its economic misery. The men who went looking for the reef knew the search would probably kill them, but they went anyway. This is one of those big Australian stories of greed, lies, fantasy and terrible hardship, which unfolds in one of the most dangerous places on earth. So naturally, it attracted the eye of author, cartoonist and historian Warren Brown. I spoke with Warren in 2017 about his book, Lassiter's Gold. Warren, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. It's a delight to be here. Now, Warren, I had the impression, mistakenly, somehow, that the story of the search for Lassiter's Reef belonged to the 19th century, to the age of Australian exploration, Burke and Wills, that that kind of period. Is this a common misapprehension you found? Very much so, Richard. Even my own brother, when I talked to him about Lassiter and I was sort of canvassing ideas, people sort of think... You know, think of the 19th century and they think of Ludwig Leichhardt and they think of Burke and Wills and all those sort of, you know, eccentric Australians who wander out in the middle of the desert and end up as a <laughs> sticky end of whatever happens to them. And to the surprise of many people, they'd go, oh, yeah, Lassiter. And it's, it's that very Australian thing. It's like Ned Kelly, yeah, he wore armour and he, you know, held people up. Or Gallipoli, <laughs> it's on a beach in Turkey and we lost it. And, and Lassiter, yeah, he's, uh, it was gold, he was a guy and he went to find it again and he got lost and he disappeared. That's about it. Uh, you know, people are very surprised to learn that it took place between the First and Second World Wars, and it was the best equipped uh, mining expedition ever. It u- utilised aircraft, it utilised trucks and cars and um, wireless and all sorts of things, and it was this amazing faith in modern technology and, and money and manpower you could throw at it, and that was the way that you are going to find this gold. There's, it's a story that really centres around this area in central Australia, west of Alice Springs, yes. uh, that's known as the Peterman Ranges. Mm. What kind of reputation did the Peterman Ranges have among the white people in the area of that time? Well, it's interesting, Richard, in that Alice Springs itself, you know, aside from the Peterman Ranges, the railway only turned up there in 1930. So the town of Alice Springs was every bit as much of a mystery as anywhere in the world. It was like Timbuktu or some very remote place. And when the railway turned up in Alice Springs, the first tourists arrived in, arrived there and were shocked 
to see people walking around with six guns on their hips and like a, like a genuine Wild West town. So west of Alice Springs, so 400 miles west of Alice Springs, where the Peterman Ranges are, it was a place shrouded in what the term would be, uh, they, they would use in the day, a hoodoo. Like right, a right, there was a bit of superstition Very much placed so. in this area. And pretty much after about 1910, nobody really wanted to head out to the Petermans. A very unusual, mysterious kind of place. And there was some suspicion that gold might be way out there. Right, so, so being unexplorable <laughs> at that point means you can project whatever fantasy you like into it, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. And don't forget, I mean, and it's still the same in some parts of the Northern Territory and uh, Northern South Australia, where it is so remote, that there are some pretty, you know, dodgy individuals who hang out there. So these sort of itinerant people who turn up and they've, they've lived various lives under various names and they've done various things and they're out there to sort of carve their fortune one way or another, but in a, in a highly secretive kind of way. And, you know, they'll, they'll say anything and do anything. It was a pretty scary kind of place. So, so the railroad came to Alice for the first time in 1930, and that's the same year that the Great Depression really hit Australia hard. I suppose this is a time where get-rich-quick schemes suddenly become even more attractive than they normally are, Warren. Well, that's exactly right, Richard. I mean, when the Great Depression hit, it, was only, it happened only a couple of days after the election of the Skull and Labor government. And there's an old saying within the Labor Party, if, you've, if you're having a bad run, you know, oh, you've got all the luck of Jim Scullin. You know, poor James <laughs> Scullin became Prime Minister. And before his cabinet was even sworn in, the Great Depression hit. Wall Street collapsed. Prime Minister Scullin's hair turned white in almost no time at all with the responsibility of it all, didn't it? Warren? I did, indeed. Yeah. He, had, he had a great shock of hair and it was, <laughs> it was snow white and then you can hardly blame him. So at this point, the member for Kalgoorlie was also the Minister for Defence, a man called Texas Green, wonderful colourful name there. So he receives a letter out of the blue from a man called Harold Lassiter. What was Lassiter proposing to the Minister for Defence, Texas Green? Well, it's the most remarkable thing because Texas Green, he was called that because he, you know, he was he was from Western Australia, but he lived for some time in the Americas, and he's now the new Minister for Defence. And then Wall Street collapses, and in that little little window of opportunity in that time, this letter arrives on his desk from this strange fellow from Cogra in New South Wales, which is a, a working class suburb in the south of Sydney. And this uh, this fellow Lassiter writes this writes this letter and it starts off in this very disarming way. I'm oh, fraternal congratulations. And uh, by the way, look, I've got an idea here. Some years ago, 30 years ago or so, I was wandering around in the middle of Australia and I found uh, a gold reef that stretched for 15 miles. It was solid gold and it sort of went off to the horizon. And I reckon that we should send a, an expedition out there and then we could pipe water from uh, the Gascoigne River and I reckon it would be a great thing. So Texas Green, he's just reading this letter going... This fellow says there's 15 miles of gold, like a highway of gold stretching to the horizon. Texas Green thinks this can't be true, but the letter is so authoritative. And this Lassiter fellow speaks with such conviction, such knowledge, that this bloke seems to know what he's talking about. Right, the about. tone's plausible, the is it? The tone is plausible. And he seems to have some kind of familiarity with mining and oh, engineering. Very Indeed, Richard. But on top of that, which, which was sticking in, in Texas Green's mind was that Years ago, around the turn of the century, in the late 1890s, these three Irish blokes were, were following some gold pr prospectors in Western Australia, and their horse threw a shoe, and when they were repairing the shoe of the horse, they found some flecks of gold, and so the, the caravan of gold prospectors moved on, so they pegged a claim which became 
Kalgoorlie. And, and so he's the member for Kalgoorlie. Yes. And, and so he thinks, well... well, uh, This could happen. Right. It could, it could be just like a one in ten chance, but but that's not bad, you know? Well, absolutely. Well, he might be thinking it could be a one in two chance. You don't know. But, I mean, it seems unlikely, but strange things like this did, you know, did actually happen. And, and to make it all the more sort of unusual, the new president of the United States during the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover, made his fortune in Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. President Hoover had been to Western Absolutely, Australia. Yes. He was he'd made gold a fortune of mining in West, in Kalgoorlie. Absolutely. So this is what's oh. going through Texas Green's mind. He's thinking maybe there is this incredible incredible belt of gold, this highway of gold, you know, mile after treasure filled mile. So Texas Green decides he needs a second opinion. He wants an expert to cast his eye over this letter and to find out whether it's feasible or not. Okay, so the, he sends a he sends a, a mining expert to go and meet with Lassiter. Yes. And, and and what did he think? Well, I mean, it was all very strange. Here's this fellow who's been charged with finding out whether this is feasible or not. And every time he has an appointment with Lassiter, who was working in a pottery factory in Redfern in Sydney, every time he goes to make the appointment, Lassiter breaks off the appointment. And finally, he gets to interview this very strange fellow, and he comes away from it and says, "Look." I think it's possible. I reckon it could actually be right. He says, but the government shouldn't be ploughing money into schemes like this, particularly not at this time, but I reckon it could be real. It might happen. And that was all that it needed to take. So to what decision started. did the government make then about well, this? Well, the, the government, interestingly, this letter to Texas Green, it went all over the place and it ended up in the, hand, in the hands of a fellow called Arthur Blakely. And Arthur Blakely was the Minister of Home Affairs, ended up in his hands. If they found this gold, it would have dragged Australia clear out of the Great Depression, made it probably the most wealthy nation on earth. Newsflash from Cogra is in, that... Yeah, is, Orient Road Cogra, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay. But, but is, is, is Lassiter, in that letter, you say, was calling for a water pipeline to be built into central yes. Australia. So this is like a, a, a project that would take, what by today's standards, billions of dollars. Indeed. And it would be like a, kind of like a snowy mountains type scheme. But, of course, that's what they did with Kalgoorlie. They built the Coolgardie pipeline, which was a um, an engineering marvel, it really was, to, to pump fresh water right, okay. from the coast all the way out. So, so this is not do, unprecedented then? No, okay. but, you know... Lassiter. Yes, who was this man, Harold <laughs> Lassiter? Was he Australian-born, Warren? He was. He was born born in Victoria in, in 1880. He had a, a varied career doing all sorts of things. And about 1901, um, Harold Lassiter moved from Australia to the United States, where he became a Mormon, and he married in the United States, and he had a child, and he eventually talked his wife into coming back to Australia from the United States. But in his time in Australia, he kind of left his wife and then remarried again and then he remarried again. So not only was he a Mormon, but he, you know, he was also a bigamist as well. So a polygamist, in fact. A polygamist. And, and on the sly. And though. on the sly, indeed. So he had, you know, sort of various groups of children around the place and um, his stories would, would, would vary a lot, I'd have to say. If he told the story, he'd believe it. Yeah. I don't think he was kind of like a... An, an active fraud. He'd just get these ideas in his head and he'd, he'd truly believe it. And some of his ideas were, were truly bizarre. During the First World War, for example, he came up with an idea after an idea after an idea of, as, to, as to how to solve problems. And very much like the letter he wrote to Texas Green, all his letters were disarmingly charming and authoritative. So they'd always start like he'd be having a conversation with someone, with a prime minister or with a minister in the government or a departmental head, as though 
they'd been having some kind of conversation. He was merely carrying this conversation off. And so they would reply in a sort of awkward way, yeah, okay, and then after a while he would take their reply you can follow the pattern. Right. Of so he's like the guy that comes up to you in a pub and says, oh, g'day, Warren, you're like you've been known each other for 100 years. And very, writers like that. Very much so. an easy familiarity. Indeed. Right. And it's disarming because you're not sure mm. whether you do know this person or not. And, for example, during the First World War, he came up with a scheme to solve the problem at Gallipoli by taking 20,000 men, and they would dig a Panama Canal-style trench across the Gallipoli Peninsula, and then they would float the uh, HMS Elizabeth through this uh, amazing Panama Canal-style trench into the Sea of Marmara, and they'd lay siege to Constantinople. And that's how they would solve it. And these letters would go in, and then there would be sort of a, a cordial response and then he replied to that. And then in the end, you find these letters in, in the National Archive, you know, with hastily scribbled pencil markings on the side saying, <laughs> don't respond, you know, it's more trouble than it's worth, and end the correspondence. <laughs> now, he, he came up with his own design for the Sydney Harbour Bridge and submitted it, but it wasn't accepted. But how similar was his design to the eventual design that we, we all know and love today, Warren? Well, well, Richard, that's true. He did, in about 1913, there was, a, there was a competition that was held for designs for the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And, of course, John Bradfield, as we know, eventually you know, was responsible for the Sydney Harbour Bridge that we know and understand. But Lasseter did indeed draw a coat hanger style single arch bridge and he fancied himself as an engineer and while he was in the United States he attained you know some qualifications from various correspondence schools in engineering and surveying and agriculture and you know I, you know, some historians have noted that the signature authenticating these looks remarkably like it's done in Lasseter's handwriting of course <laughs> so uh, but he did he did draw this detailed plan it's not exactly like the Harbour Bridge that we understand but very very similar He's a crank, in other words. He is a crank. But, but nonetheless, the thing he's holding out here, a reef of gold, a highway of gold in Central Australia, it's such an attractive proposition that it seems to, like, uh, confound people's judgement, Warren. Well, indeed. I think they call it you know, the Great Malays gold fever, of course. But, you know, what people weren't seeing at the time when Lasseter turned up at the time of the, of the Great Depression with this story was that actually that story had been around for centuries in one form or another. The, the old prospector, you know, I know where the X marks the spot. And it, it's an infectious thing. And I have to say, when I was writing the book, I was becoming nervous that somehow or other I'd fall into this into this horrible vortex myself. So, oh dear, what, whatever happened to Brown? Went off to Central <laughs> Australia. His, his yeah. sun-bleached corpse was found in the desert somewhere. Clutching yes. gold. Clutching gold, yes, that's right. <laughs> or no gold, as the case may be. He sent on his way, Lasseter, to the Australian Workers' Union, the offices of the Australian AWU in Sydney, to make a pitch. It is, indeed, he does do this. However, having just said that, it's more than likely that some members of the, of the Scullin government tipped him into the, into the hands oh, of the, AR, right. the AWU, the Australian Workers' right, Union. Right, so they said something like, we can't fund it, but, but go and talk to our mate. Go, exactly, right. a ballot box John Bailey. So, ballot box John Bailey. Indeed. So he was the president of the Australian Workers' Union in New South Wales, and he was an extraordinary character in his own right, and he'd cemented himself in as the president of the Australian Workers' Union 
But in, in 1923, the ALP were having a, a sort of an annual general meeting where Bailey turned up with the, the ballot boxes, had them special, for voting, had them specially constructed with secret sliding panels so that he could actually add and, sub <laughs> add and subtract votes at the ALP conference. Like a magician. Like right. a magician. And, in fact, the bo boxes were extraordinary. They had bogus nail heads and all sorts of things. All right. Like so, so like meets like here, in other words. So Lasseter goes into yeah. Bailey's office. Indeed. And, and that's when he tells Bailey the story story of how he found this magical reef of gold in Central Australia. Tell me the story that Lasseter told him. So like. Lasseter says to John Bailey, who happens to have in the room with him a, a newspaper reporter, Errol Coote, Bailey's own son, who was a secretary of the AWU and a mining expert from the, from the union. They all happened to be in the room at the one time. So Lasseter sits down and tells this story exactly the same way as he'd, as he'd written in the letter that 30 years ago he'd been operating a trawler up, uh, up near Cairns, he had been, and then he got, he got a bit sick of that, so he decided he'd heard that there were rubies in Alice Springs around Central Australia, so he decided he'd leave the, leave the ship and he'd walk, mind you, walk from Cairns to Alice Springs. It's a fair old hike in 1897, but nevertheless he, he did this and he bought a couple of horses and he went to Alice Springs and he went to the McDonnell Ranges and he discovered... The rubies weren't actually rubies after all. They were garnets, a much cheaper kind of stone. And then somehow or other he got awfully lost because he was an inexperienced bushman. And so they're all listening to this, taking it all in. And so he says, oh, you know, then I got lost west of Alice Springs and I was seriously lost. And then uh, one of my horses knocked up, as, as he says, you know, they died and then another one. And the next thing he's sort of crawling around on his hands and knees and he finds these strange rocks on the ground and he says they're sort of laid out in a strange pattern and he looks at them and they're gleaming, they're gold. And then he can see gold as far as the eye can see and then he can see more gold and it stretches on for seven miles, he says. And so he gets a little oatmeal bag and he fills the oatmeal bag full of these amazing stones, these little gold nuggets. And then he goes wandering off with his horse and the next thing he's about to die and he's crawling around, parched, you know, crawling through the desert. Then an Afghan camelier, by a sheer miracle, finds him near the border of the Northern Territory in Western Australia, finds you know, Lassiter clutching this little oatmeal bag of gold and picks him up and takes him to a, a, the camp of a government surveyor called Harding. And Harding looks at the gold and says that, you know, it's the finest gold specimens he's ever seen. And, you know, where is it? But Lassiter's so distraught by the whole exercise. He never wants to go back. And they make their way all the way to Carnarvon, way over on the other side. So On the La WA coast? Yeah, yeah. So Lasseter's right. gone from Cairns to Alice Springs to Carnarvon, can you believe it? And they get a get a steamer down to Perth and, and Lasseter goes out to the Kalgoorlie goldfields for some years and this surveyor Harding, you know, is harping at him, take me back there, take me back there. So finally he agrees, of course, and they go back, back up to Carnarvon and then from the reverse side, Lasseter walks back to the middle of Australia. They find the gold reef again. It's all fantastic. They go back and then Harding dies, you see. So Lasseter, you know, he knows where the gold is. He's been there twice. And now he know, now that the Great Depression's on, he can save the nation. Let's go find the gold Let's reef. Let's go find the gold all, reef. All right, Warren. Now, I'm putting myself in that. If I'm in that meeting, yes. I'm going to have some questions. My question is, well, first one will be, I'm not sure anyone in human history up to that point had walked all the way from Cairns to uh, Alice Springs. That doesn't seem like it's remotely plausible. The second question is, why has he held on to this knowledge for more than 30 years? Uh, well, Richard, it's probably just as well that you weren't in that meeting. Yes. I, <laughs> I would have been a party questions. pooper, wouldn't yeah, I? Yeah, I would have been. And that was the idea, really. Don't, <laughs> you know, don't, don't argue with, it, with this, this sort of nonsensical, this nonsensical oh, story. No. Just keep going with it. And also, if he's, if he's picked up all this gold, why isn't he rich? Why is he living in Cogra and working in a potting shed in uh, Redfern? Well, 
there, yeah, those questions were... Those, they were those not asked. Not there and then. then. They, uh, <laughs> later on, they were, to some degree. Why, right. you know, so. OK, all right. OK, I'm overreacting the pudding here a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> Okay, so so he's told this extraordinary tale. Yes. Uh, what did the AWU uh, leaders and the men in that room think of his story, Warren? Well, the, the mining expert in the room, he, he worked out exactly how much money that this gold reef would have been, and it was phenomenal. So, so how much gold did he... How, what was the dollar value, the, the pound value they put on it at the time? Well, I mean, it's 1930. So sixty-six million pounds in nineteen thirty, and that's like billions and billions of dollars in today's money. Oh, very much so. I mean, you could right. buy you could buy a Model T Ford with the equivalent of like four hundred dollars. So sixty-six million pounds in nineteen thirty <laughs> was was something you know extraordinary. So were they inspired then to go looking for this reef? Very much so. I mean, and you could see it was pure, unadulterated greed. So this fellow, John Bailey, the president of the AWU, decided that, that he would form this company and he would take shares of publicly listed company. And then Bailey himself said he didn't want the government to get their hands on any of this gold, any of this money, that you know he wanted to control it. And so this company was set up with a pack of individuals that you would not believe. No one suited at all for a gold prospecting party at whatsoever. A very seedy bunch of people who'd had, you know, very dubious backgrounds. But, it, you know, it was all about greed, you know. Who was to lead this expedition? Well, I mentioned before when Lassiter's letter had been written to Texas Green, it passed across the desk of the Minister for Home Affairs, a fellow called Arthur Blakely, and his brother ended up uh, being given the job of leading the expedition, Fred Blakely. Fred Blakely, at the turn of the century, he was what they would call an overlanding cyclist. These, these overlanding cyclists, all, the, all the, the rage to go for these sort of strapping young men to get on a bicycle and to, and to ride across Australia or around Australia. And Fred Blakely had had some, quite a lot of bush experience. He'd had some experience as a prospector as well, but no experience in setting up an expedition. He was known as the bicycle bushman, so he knew how to do things on his own, on the back of a, you know, on a on a leather saddle, on a diamond frayed. But that's bike. different. That's different from leading a party of, of men. Very much it? so. So what what John Bailey was also doing is he was taking money out of the AWU union members' funds, thousands and thousands of pounds, and ploughing it into this expedition. So in time, on the basis of the report that had been put together, the use of aircraft, six wheel trucks, cars, wireless, all this stuff, it was cutting-edge te you know, technology in 1930. And, you know, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong, indeed? Now, the use of a plane sounds pretty sensible in a lot of ways, like you can use a plane to scout quite distances quite easily uh, from the air. You get that aerial point of view. How is that going to work? How are they going to bring a plane all the way out there and fuel it and supply it and all that? Well, interestingly, as they were sort of talking in the AWU office, there were people in Central Australia clearing airstrips for this survey aircraft that was doing a mapping exploration that had been taking place in the very part of the world west of Alice Springs with the use of, of an aircraft. So the, the young journalist who had been in the, in the meeting with Lassiter and, and the AWU mob was a fellow called Errol Coote, who is another interesting character who'd been court-martialed during the First World War. He was a, an effeminate dandy, I think he was described in some ways, and, and a real hothead. And, but he also had... A flaneur. A flaneur, indeed. He was a, a boulevardier. A, a, a mountebank, perhaps. A mountebank. <laughs> and, um, and he had a, a, a bit of a pilot's licence, if that makes sense. What so, you, What do you mean, a bit of a pilot's well, licence? Well, he'd been trying to get his pilot's licence, but he'd sort of got a, a, like a learner's permit, but it had expired. 
And so he decided he would cement himself as the expedition's official pilot. So he went looking for an aircraft and it was going to be this kind of exploration blitzkrieg. So they would do, see things from the air, they'd have ground forces moving in. Lassiter said that, don't worry, I found it before, I know where it is, <laughs> she'll be right. So um, that's how it happened. So they found a gypsy moth aircraft, a kind of forerunner to the famous tiger moth. And Errol Coote, this sort of um, dandy, if you like, uh, with no licence and the aircraft being unregistered, what can go wrong, uh, decided that he would fly the aircraft out to, uh, to Alice Springs, which he did, which was in 1930 was no mean feat in itself. Now, you mentioned a truck there, a, a six-wheeled truck. Now, this, this was the legendary Thornycroft truck. He's a wonderful why, name. Why was that thought to be suitable for going out into the outback into the desert? So there was a British truck company called Thornycroft, and um, they specialised in making you know these massive massive trucks that were ideal for desert exploration. And Thornycroft, you know, the company itself was so taken by the excitement and the daring do of such an adventure, they would loan this very expensive truck so that they could take out into the desert. And it was thought they would use it almost like a tank. Fine British engineering, nothing could stop it. Okay, so you've got this expedition, but they're, they're heading somewhere out in west of Alice Springs... Did Lassiter give the exact location before they left? No. So what was it? Well, kind of, Richard. So there was a problem. John Bailey, the head of the AWU, had been raking in money from all sorts of directions, from public subscriptions, from union members' funds, to fund this incredible expedition. And then it occurred to him, what if Lassiter dies out there or he disappears? We don't know where we're going. And so incredibly, Lassiter agrees to write down the coordinates of where the, the gold reef would be in invisible ink, no less. And this letter is lodged with the Bank of Australasia in Martin Place. So John in Bailey, invisible ink? Like, what, what do you mean, like lemon juice? Well, lemon juice. And that's, that's put away in a safe? In a vault in Martin Place in Sydney, the Bank of Australasia. So if Lassiter dies and they have to you know, prove that he's dead, then ballot box Bailey can get hold of the letter and he can, well, however you decipher invisible ink, you put it over a candle or something and the numbers, the coordinates would magically appear. This is true. <laughs> and so Bailey can breathe easy that some, you know, at least we've got this letter in invisible ink in the Bank of Australasia. <laughs> Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So the expedition converges on Alice Springs, Warren. The plane's there, the truck is there, they're all set to go. Once they all arrive in Alice, though, how do the locals in Alice greet their arrival? Well, it's very... Are they as excited <laughs> as the rest of the nation well, by this? Well, definitely not. In Alice Springs, I mean, they, they just see a whole gang of city slickers, cashed-up city slickers, descend on Alice Springs. And it's really not much more than a, than a shanty town. It's made of corrugated iron and there's a few shops and there's a few bits and pieces. Fred Blakely, the expedition leader, he arrives and, and Lassiter himself and all the other members of the team, the seven members of the team. And the locals are really nonplussed by all this. Because, Why are they so nonplussed? Well, they've seen many expeditions come and go looking for gold and people returning with very little. And, of course, they've turned up with these amazing, amazing machines. They've got this incredible um, Thornycroft six-wheel truck, this mighty thing, and the locals are looking at the truck going, mate, 
you really need camels. You don't want that thing. That thing's not going to be able to go 200 miles and have this truck in the desert. You know where you're going, you know. And the, and the point was that they actually didn't know where they were going because Harold Lasseter, he wasn't telling anybody on the expedition where the gold reef was supposed to be. And Lasseter was recognising things that had only been there for a couple of years, but he, he hadn't been to Alice Springs since 1897, 30 years before. And the local magistrate said, this guy's full of it. So Fred Blakely, the leader, was starting to get the idea that actually Lassiter had never, ever been to Alice Springs oh, so, so Lassiter and Alice was walking around going, oh, the old post office when, in fact, it had been built two years earlier. E exactly, that kind of oh, thing. Dear. And so, you know... So as they're heading out into the desert then, the expedition leader has got some serious doubts... My very word. ...about Lassiter and, and his story of the Reef of Gold. But why didn't he call it off? I mean, wouldn't you call it off at that point? I would call it off, I like to think, at that point. I think you would call it off at that point, Warren. Why is he still going out there with well, this the, expedition? the problem with it is, is that the expedition is really organised by this the head of the AWU. And what would happen was that if, if you call the expedition off, then Bailey would no doubt have said to Fred Blakely, the expedition leader, it's your fault, you're in for it. Um, and so there were some real genuine threats and concerns. Bailey had been, when he was kicked out of the Labor Party, had been, uh, the Labor Party wrote a report on him and said he had a, an unparalleled career of criminal misconduct. So he was a pretty, pretty serious guy. A dangerous kicked, figure. Very so, much so. so then Blakely, the expedition leader, are you saying then he has to stick with the expedition until he can prove that Lasseter's a fraud? Indeed. And what would happen would be that, of course, if he called it off, Lasseter would say, I knew where I was going and Blakely let the, let the expedition down. So it was a big mechanised expedition heading out to who knew where. They certainly didn't. Now, the plane needed fuel, and that was to be carried in the Thornycroft truck. But how thirsty was the Thornycroft? Well, the, the, the thing was no-one had tested the Thornycroft truck until it arrived by train in Alice Springs, so they took it around the block and discovered that it used something like a mile, a gallon for every three miles. You know, the fuel they had for the truck, they know they'd sort of get out into the desert that it would run out of fuel and they'd all die. So that's why the decision was made by Fred Blakely to haul his mate in, to say, can we borrow you and your little Chev truck to carry the fuel for the truck which was carrying the fuel for the aircraft? So none of this had really been thought out of in Sydney beforehand. And on top of that, they brought with them a portable wireless. So when they say portable wireless in 1930, this is, a, this is, not, like, this is not like a CB radio or a walkie-talkie. This thing weighed 80 kilograms. It took three men to lift it. And so it would, you know, hoist it on like the a cabinet. It was like a cabinet <laughs> yeah. with lots of, you know, the switches and things that no one really knew how to how to operate. Who was to operate the the wireless? Well, interestingly, it was Lasseter himself, and he'd taken it upon himself to supposedly receive wireless tuition in Sydney, and he was the one who would operate this wireless once they got out into the into the never never and left civilization far behind. He'd be the one who would operate the wireless. So they left Alice with. Uh, a minor bit of fanfare. Well, but the minor bit of fanfare actually happened when they got to the Todd River in the middle of the town and the truck got bogged. So the old timers had said that this truck couldn't travel 200 miles, it couldn't travel 200 yards. So the town <laughs> came out and cheered while they spent hours trying to dig the truck out. So the Thornycroft truck was buried to its axle. So Fred Blakely, the expedition leader, took this as a rather bad omen. So they headed off up towards uh, the uh, Tropic of Capricorn heading out to this this site called Ilbilla, which is where this aircraft strip had been been cleared. Yeah. Now, as they were heading west, was Lasseter recognising landmarks and saying, oh, I know this, and you go through here? And uh, well, how familiar was he with this landscape? Well, you know, poor Fred Blakely was caught between a rock and a hard place 
and had to follow Lassiter's whims. And Lassiter would just sort of wander around and he'd say, oh, we go over here and we go over there. And in, in time, of course, Blakely gets fed up with this and says, I thought that you knew where you were going. We passed these incredible sites, these mountains and monoliths and you don't seem to remember any of those. And then Lassiter starts remembering things like, oh, here's these two old trees I slung my hammock up in 30 years ago. And Blakely's saying, well, those trees only live for about 12 to 15 years of age. So, you know, they wouldn't have been there. And then Lassiter would say, oh, I, I camped up on top of that cave on top of the mountain. And then he's saying, well, no one could climb up there. So all these things are happening. And, of course, the cancer of doubt and mistrust sets in. And, of course, the different characters start playing off each other and it becomes very ugly indeed. Lassiter had said he'd walked all the way from Cairns to Alice Springs. If he'd done that, he would have had the most extraordinary bush skills. Was he displaying incredible bush skills on this on this trek so far, Warren? No, well, that's the point, Richard. And, of course, Fred Blakely, the expedition leader, is finding all these things out. In those days, you know, the only thing that... I mean, the diet must have been horrendous for bushmen and stockmen and cattlemen and, and drovers, but they would pretty much eat damper, which is all it is, is flour and water, and you put it in some coals and, that, and maybe a bit of bicarb or a bit of salt or whatever to give it a bit of flavour, but it's just flour and water. Lassiter had no idea how to make damper. Every bushman knew it. Just a great big scone, that's all it is. Not knowing how to use flour and water to make a meal was a real shock. The two-way radio was the crucial link to the outside world. Lassiter was the chosen operative. Could he operate it? Well, when they got to a certain place, Blakely, the expedition leader, says, let's use this portable wireless. So, you know, half a dozen blokes lift this right. thing out. It's like a the bar fridge. Yes. <laughs> like a, more like a billiard table than a bar fridge. Oh, really? So, well, a great big thing with, you know, lots of holes and, you know, wires and bits and pieces. And so they discover that they've got the headset for listening, but Lasseter hasn't packed the, the mouthpiece for broadcasting. So they can listen, but they can't broadcast. And, of course, all everybody starts glaring at Lassiter that he's he's really messed up with this. He's going to get them all killed. Yeah. I mean, that's what you'd be thinking, wouldn't you? This it, man was going to get us killed. Oh, indeed. How did the truck fare going in the bush scrub? Dreadfully. The truck, you know, I mean, it wasn't meant for that. It was the kind of thing built for driving around, I would say, if they, you know, they say for trackless desert exploration, for driving around in a desert in the Middle East, perhaps. But the Australian deserts can be quite different. It's not just sand, which they found plenty of, but mulga, acacia trees that are like iron. And they have to get the axes out and chop their way through it and chop and chop and chop. You know, the spikes from these trees would would puncture tyres one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. But a camel would have just stepped through it, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Fred Blakely realised not long after they'd left Alice Springs that camels were the, would have been the way to go. But people were, in, you know, they had this idea that technology would defeat nature. They genuinely thought that. It was a very slow process, hacking their way through and the truck pushing trees over. And by the time it got there, the truck was virtually a ruin and had the windscreen smashing. So they, the truck just made it there. Once they got to that airstrip you were talking about, Coot went off to pick up the plane. What happened to the plane? Well, it's an interesting point. So once they got to the airstrip, they sent Errol Coote, the pilot, who had a bit of a pilot's licence, in the car with a driver all the way back to bring, try and bring the, the plane back up to this site at Ilbilla. And, of course, Errol Coote crashed the plane spectacularly, nearly killing himself. Um, and the driver who had been watching him take off to try and fly had saved him, put him on the back of the car and drove him back to Alice Springs where he was in a, in a, you know, a critical condition in a hospital in Alice Springs. 
So the expedition's going west from Alice Springs, getting close to the WA border. Trucks trashed, the planes crashed. Lassiter doesn't know his way. He's telling stories that can't possibly be true. He's not able to operate the radio. At this point, through the haze, they see a camel train coming towards them, Warren. Tell me about that camel train. Well, this is where the story becomes super interesting. <laughs> That's where it gets weird. Yeah, weird. Weird. <laughs> so they're at, at the, the landing site at Ilpilla. One afternoon through the shimmering haze, these camels arrive. And it's two Aboriginal guys with these camels and a young European fellow who's got a big hat and he's got guns and various, you know, various bits and pieces. Out in the middle of nowhere, absolutely nowhere. We're talking right out near the border of the Northern Territory in Western Australia. And this fellow wanders up and he speaks with his European accent, his German accent, a young guy. And he just says, uh, I thought you might have some food and you can give me some food if you would. So all the expedition members are just looking at each other going, who is this fellow? And he announces his name is Albert Paul Johns. And he's a, about a 22-year-old German fellow, he'd you know, come from Germany only recently, and he was what they'd call a, a dingo scalper or a dingo shooter. So the, in those days, um, there was a bounty for dingo pelts for skins, and so there was money to be made by going out and shooting dingoes because they were thought to, to attack cattle and sheep. And, and so he was out there presumably you know, looking for dingoes to shoot. And he had two Aboriginal companions with him. Yes. Were they... Were they Companions? Were they associates? Were they slaves? Well, or what were they? Well, doing? they'd actually come from the Lutheran mission at Hermansburg, which is, you know, roughly in the direction of Alice Springs. And so there was a, a, a small German community there at the, at the Hermansburg mission. And in fact, the Aborigines there, in fact, spoke German over English. And this fellow, Paul Johns, he had set out ostensibly to go looking for dingoes to shoot and to get their scalps and what have you. But in fact, as it transpired, he knew that the mining expedition was going out there and he had gone out there to ingratiate himself, to, to become part of the expedition. And hopefully get a piece of the gold. hopefully get a piece of the gold. And the theory was, and he was quite right, that the truck and the plane would, would be, become useless out there and he would turn up with a string of camels and they would employ him. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? That's exactly what happened. What happened when they got to the point at last where Lassiter had said... The gold reef would be, Warren? Well, finally they got on top of this mountain to try and see where the gold reef was and then Lassiter says it's X hundred miles that way, pointing to the Peterman Ranges. And Fred Blakely just said, you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're doing, but he decided we'll go and follow that path. So they head off towards the Peterman Ranges and get to this area called the Big Breakaway where if you'd have ever seen it, you'd know it, and Lassiter had never seen this area before. It was like a big basin, like a mini Grand Canyon, if you like. Everyone said there's no way we're putting the truck down in there uh, because we'll never get out. We'll die if we try and put the truck down into that place. Lassiter had never seen it before, and then Fred Blakely was able to actually say, you've never been here, have you? This has all been a tremendous lie, of which Lassiter really had no answer. So Fred Blakely says to him, he says, look, we'll go back to the airstrip, that young German guy with his Aboriginal guides, he's waiting for us at the airstrip. He said, I'll let you go. 
He said, you can disappear. And that's what used to happen. And of course, in those days, if Lasseter was handed back as a fraud, then he would have gone to jail, of course, because, you know, he'd been misleading, you know, all sorts of corporate laws had been broken and he'd have to face John Bailey. And even if he didn't go to jail, John Bailey would have made sure that Lasseter never, ever, ever pulled a stunt like that again. So basically what, what Blakely was saying is, I'll hand you over to the German guy and you can go and look for your gold and we're heading back to Alice Springs and back to Sydney. I'm going to make a report that this has all been a wild goose chase. And he saw Lasseter walk off into the distance and he said, there goes my millions. There goes my millions. Even though all along he'd kind of known Lasseter was a fantasist, it's only when Lasseter leaves that he says goodbye to that dream. It's like there's still still a tiny fragment of him that still believed, even right up to the end there. Absolutely. And, and look, even today, there are people who, who are so convinced that, the, that Lasseter did find the gold and it's out there. And it's this kind of irrational desire. Oh, you know, maybe we just go over that one hill, one, one more, more yeah. one more hill. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's there. And in the end... It wasn't there. So Lassiter went out alone with Albert Paul Johns, the German dingo scalper, yes. into the desert. Yes. Who came back? Well, Paul Johns had a very dodgy reputation around the Hermansburg mission, and so the Aboriginal guides didn't want to didn't want to be going with Paul Johns. So Lassiter and Johns wandered off with the camels, and then they get to a point where Lassiter says to Johns, "You wait here. We're so close to my gold. You wait here for a couple of days. I'll come back with the gold." So Lassiter wanders off and after a few days comes back with a bag, supposedly full of gold nuggets, and he says, I've found my reef, I've found my gold reef. John's thinks, you beauty, or however you say that in German, wunderbar. He says, <laughs> he thinks, I'm going to see this amazing gold. And so he says to Lassiter, well, show me, show me the gold. Lassiter says, it's none of your business. And John's just goes feral. He's saying, you were a fraud all the time. I know you were a fraud, you know. And so they have this heated argument and Lassiter throws a plate, a steel plate at, at John's. John's pulls out this revolver. And so they have this almighty fight. You know, the account is that they're rolling around on the ground and, and the hammer on the revolver, you know, the, the trigger's pulled. But John's has this revolver in his hand. Lassiter's grappling with it. And Lassiter is a really nuggety little guy wrenches the revolver from Paul Johns and puts it on him. So Johns is unarmed. And so they have this standoff. And in the end, they calm down, apparently. And Johns agrees, says, look, you know, you stay, I'm going to go, and you go and look up, look for your gold, and leaves Lassiter with some camels. And Johns presumably heads back to Alice Springs. How do we know that's what transpired? Well, what happened was that instead of heading back to Alice Springs, Lassiter says... He gives Johns these letters, two letters, and one is addressed to the governor in Alice Springs and one is addressed to the, the sergeant of police. So Johns, who's a fairly shifty kind of character, opens these letters up and reads that the one addressed to the police says that, lock him up, this fellow pulled a gun on me and what have you. So Johns decides he'll have a big detour and he'll go back to the Hermansburg mission for a few weeks and then eventually he'll go back into Alice Springs and hand these letters. So Lassiter's sort of waiting for someone, for Johns to go to Alice Springs and so that some supplies can be sent back. But Johns just leaves him out there for weeks and weeks and weeks. He does eventually turn up. Johns turns up alone in Alice Springs. Because people in Alice Springs are going, oh, that's that German guy who supposedly went with Lassiter. He's on his own. He must have done him in. He must have killed him. 
And of course, he goes to the government resident to hand these letters in. And of course, there was no rush to go and help Harold Lassiter by anyone. Johns had come back into Alice Springs and he hung around there for a few weeks. And eventually, word came through that they would go looking for Harold Lassiter, not because they wanted to see if he was all right, but they wanted to find out where the gold reef was. So in time, Lassiter became kind of irrelevant. He, no one really went looking for him. They were just look, wanting to find him so he could show where the gold was. So it was a very, very grubby you know, uh, episode at this stage. So another party was sent out to find Lassiter. How, how was he found? Well, they employed the services of a rather colourful bushman called Bob Buck, who, you know, he... he there just, is no one uncolourful in the story. No, no, it? but Bob Buck is tremendous. Right. He had a big sort of Henry Lawson moustache and he just looked and breathed and smelled like Central Australia. Right. And he had a, a whole team of Aboriginal trackers with him. And in time, Bob Buck came back with a set of dentures and said, oh, I found him. And, of course, they had found a body way out in the middle of nowhere. They found some notes that Lassiter had written in a, in a diary. It's a red-covered diary. It was in Lassiter's handwriting, but it had this incredible saga of how an Aboriginal tribe found him, and he lived with them for some time, some months, and he was wasting away, And according to this diary. And he was writing in the diary that, you know, talking to his wife, Irene, and he's, Rainy, you know, I love you. And, you know, he says, oh, what good is all this gold but for the want of a loaf of bread or something like that? And, he, and the, the, the story he writes becomes even more graphic. And he's writing saying, you know, oh, the ants are eating my face away. And, darling, Irene, I love you. And Paul Johns left me out here. He said he'd come back and he didn't. And, you know, if only Fred Blakely had listened to me, I found my gold reef and all this sort of thing. But the document itself is a quite questionable article. When it appeared, Fred Blakely, the expedition leader, said, Lassiter never wrote, he never had a diary like that. He said, he, he did write in a diary, but it was a great big Morocco-bound black thing with beautiful paper. And, but this little red diary, where did that come from? I never saw that anywhere. And the whole time that we were out in the scrub, never saw it. And, of course, the diary, for something that had been found, found in a cave where Lassiter had been you know, living for some months, it wasn't ingrained with all the grime and red dirt of Central Australia. So there, it's possible that this diary could have been planted out there, perhaps by Bob Buck. And so to try and prove the case that the dead body out there was actually Harold Lassiter, so that back in Sydney, they could then get hold of the letter, which had the coordinates on it, you see, oh, written oh, in invisible oh, ink. Oh, this is... What? So, so <laughs> are you saying like the, the suggestion here, the theory is, the, the hypothesis is Bob Buck, who went out to find Lassiter, was loaded, loaded with a, a pre-written diary saying, I'm ready to die out here in the desert, and this diary was found. But it was only the discovery of this diary and this quote-unquote body that allows the expedition to say, well, Lassiter's dead, therefore we are legally able to open the letter that he left behind in Invisible Ink. So what happened was that when Bob Buck came back to the Hermannsburg mission, the, the young German teacher who was there was like an assistant coroner. When he had Bob Buck turned up with Lassiter's dentures, he was, you know, that's good enough for me. Do I need to go out and see it? Bob Buck says, no, you don't need to see that. Radio, okay, I'm satisfied. He says, you know, we've found Lassiter's body. So back at the Bank of Australasia in Martin Place, um, John Bailey turns up there with his son, Ern Bailey. They're rubbing their hands with glee. And, of course, the, the story's broken, of course, as you mentioned in the Daily Mirror and various other newspapers, that Lassiter's body's been found. This is front-page news across Australia. Indeed. And, right. and so the person at the bank they go and see to have a look at this letter 
He's not convinced. He smells a rat. He says, this document I've got from this assistant coroner out in the Northern Territory, it's not good enough. It's not a legal document that can prove that Lassiter is dead. I need, we need to have someone cite the body. John Bailey and his son, they're tearing their hair out, even at this stage, even after he's dead, Lassiter's making their lives a misery. So they have to go through all these court orders and various things. But in the end, finally, um, they agree to have a look at this letter. And so the, the sergeant from the CIB, the New South Wales Police, comes in. They, you know, hold it over a candle or whatever you do to expose the, the invisible coordinates. And it's just a bunch of numbers that mean absolutely nothing. It's just a jumble of numbers. And so, I mean, you can only imagine what John Bailey would be thinking, having pulled all the union members' funds and poured it into this, this extraordinary expedition to come up completely empty-handed. It seems to me, Warren, the only thing we know for sure out of this whole episode <laughs> is that Harold Lassiter is dead. Well, no, we don't. That's the interesting part. <laughs> we don't? We don't. We don't know that he's dead because Bob Buck, who found the body, of course, turns up in Sydney as, you know, fated as this great Australian bushman. Like Davy Crockett. Yeah, like right. Davy. Well, it's a name like that, right, isn't it? Yeah. And so they turns up in a pub and here is Fred Blakely the, um, in Sydney and, you know, and Fred Blakely comes up to him and says, I know you, you're Bob Buck. And he says... Harold Lassiter didn't die, did he? Bob Buck doesn't know what to say. He says, "Oh, you wouldn't, wouldn't cramp a fellow's pitch, would you?" Which means, like, "Oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't spoil a bloke's story, would you?" And so, when this all happened, they wanted Bob Buck to testify at the Bank of Australasia, of course, that he had in fact found the body of Harold Lassiter. Bob Buck said, "Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm not really sure if it's the body of a white fella or a black fella." That's what he says. Oh my God! So they're not really sure. So Fred Blakely is convinced that Lassiter has actually done a runner and he's still alive. So he puts out a kind of all-points bulletin for people in Western Australia. Have you seen a guy that matches this description? And people say, yes, we have. And, of course, letters arrive. So this becomes a kind of a life's work for Fred Blakely, the expedition leader, to prove that Lassiter's alive. There's no way and he survived are, that. There are letters in, in the Mitchell Library in Sydney. A woman says that this fellow called Duncan came and stayed. He was burning photographs and things, and it was his family, and she found letters addressed to Lassiter, and he matched the description. He was short and stocky and, you know... And some people claimed that he'd gone back to America and he'd been hidden by the Mormon church and all sorts of things. So the story kept going. Warren, this is one of those dangerous <laughs> stories, and it's a dangerous story, and I mean that because it's a bit like a vortex. Nothing seems to set, does it? Nothing's, no. Nothing see, is what it seems to be, like a, the phantasm of, of Lassiter's Reef is just, just everywhere in this story. Well, it's, it's interesting because, Richard, fundamentally it's, a kind of, it's really a kind of crime story, I think, and that's sort of how I fell into the story in the first place. There are people who are so... Obsessive, probably the right word, about the Lassiter story, about what happened and everything he did and wrote and everything that everybody else did and wrote. People were always looking for a clue to find out where that gold reef is because they're convinced, just as when we're in the 1930s. So. Hey, uh, sorry, are you telling me that there are people today oh, who think that Lassiter's reef exists? Absolutely. That what is, what is so, seems to me, to be patently a made up story by a fantasist. But Richard, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am, actually. In this, time, in this case, I am. Well, you know, there are, you know, I've, I've, since the books came, come out, I've had some people contact me. Oh, no. 
who have actually found gold and they know where it is. They know where the gold reef is. And, you know, and so it never goes well, away. Well, if, if, they, if they do, why aren't they rich, Warren? That's what I say. Well, I always think this, Richard. Mm. I mean, if I, people will say, do, you, do I think, do I believe it's there? And if I said it isn't there, I guarantee you someone will find it tomorrow. <laughs> and if I say it is there, it'll never be found. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's how I feel about it. This is one of these great gothic Australian stories. Uh, it ought to be made into a film, and it's been great to speak to you about it, Warren, and thank you so much for sharing this story today. Oh, Richard, it's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.